Thank you and welcome to Scripture on Creation. I'm Scott Kump. And I'm Dr. Ben Scripture. Dr. Scripture, in some of your travels lately where you've had the opportunity to give Scripture on Creation presentations, you've been presenting a lecture entitled Evolution, Creation, and Intelligent Design. What's the difference? Mm -hmm. And in today's program, you want to, in a sense, give a condensed version of that presentation to our radio audience. Yeah, Scott, you know, there's a lot of confusion out there about what the difference is between these three things, Mm -hmm. especially the difference between creation and intelligent design. And there's some overlap there, too, isn't there? Well, there's plenty of overlap, yeah, but not as much overlap as evolutionists would like people to think. Mm -hmm. And that's where some of that confusion comes from. Evolutionists talk as though creation and intelligent design are one and the same. And so even in schools where they're just trying to get some intelligent design principles introduced as a way of explaining an alternative for how Mm. things came about, they say, oh, no, no, you can't talk about intelligent design. (laughs) That's just creation in sheep's clothing and or wolf's clothing, I guess. (laughs) And the fact of the matter is, as we'll see, as I try to explain some of these things, that in fact, they can be very different and they certainly are not one and the same. And we can point out that there's also some overlap between intelligent design and evolution. Oh, certainly there is. And so what I want to do is just, first of all, to make sure that we know what we're talking about, because this is one of the areas where it is sort of difficult to understand one another when you are using different definitions, but the same words, you know? So these are the definitions that I'm going to be using. First of all, what is evolution? Well, the simplest definition is it's change over time. But Scott, that means you and I are evolving because you're a little bigger than you used to be, and I'm a little grayer than I used to be. (laughs) So that's not what we mean by evolution. Evolution, in the sense that I'm going to be talking about it, is it's a gradual process in which things change into different and usually more complex or ordered forms. And especially now, we're going to be relating this to living organisms because they refer to evolution as the evolution of space, you know, the evolution of the planet. We're talking about the evolution of living things. Biological evolution. Exactly. And so there are two types. And one of the kinds is called microevolution of organisms. Well, I don't know of any creationist that would argue with the idea that microevolution occurs. Of course it occurs. Another way we could describe microevolution is it's adaptation of the kinds. We're talking about, from a biblical perspective, the kinds that God created there in Genesis chapter 1. So microevolution is the adaptation of species. It's a change from one kind of salmon to another kind of salmon. Uh, That's a good example, sure. It's the adaptation of species to varying environments. The biological term is speciation. And that's no big deal, frankly, although it's important for organisms to be able to survive when the environments change. Then the other kind of evolution is macroevolution of organisms, and that's the generation of major biochemical and anatomical structures different from an organism's ancestral population. In other words, over many generations, you've got major changes like a fish growing legs. And the ultimate would be a simple little phrase we call microbes to men. And The theory of evolution actually believes that. It went from single-celled organisms all the way to men. So now in general, when I'm talking about evolution now at various points through our program today, I'm going to essentially be referring to macroevolution. Okay. 
Now, the next word, creation, has several definitions, but generally the idea of creation is it's the generation of organisms by supernatural means. But more specifically, biblical creation would be the generation of life by the supernatural creative power of the God revealed in the Bible. Because there's people who don't believe in the Bible, but believe in different gods and believe in different creation stories. Absolutely. So you can see that, like you say, there's other kinds of creation besides biblical creation. Then intelligent design is the last category. Intelligent design is the generation of the material universe by an intentional, intelligent designer. And there's a couple of brands, you might say. Really, there's more than just two, but a couple of different kinds, we might say, of intelligent design. There's the mystical intelligent design. And that is where there's obviously a design and mystical intelligent design would basically propose that the universe and everything in it, I suppose, came from a vastly superior intelligence in the universe. But, you know, that can be way out there. You know, um, the new Star Wars movie is coming out. Remember the force? I mean, some of the intelligent design ideas are literally just like there's an intelligence, it's a force, you know, so... Yeah, it's, it's very much relates to New Age, to Hinduism, and a lot of beliefs like that. Right. It doesn't resemble biblical creation <laughs> in any way, shape, or form, except in the area of there's a designer, okay? And then there's divine intelligent design. Again, not necessarily the divine being of the Bible, but divine intelligent design would say the universe comes from the design of a divine or supernatural being generally identified as God who is outside the material universe. So with those different descriptions or definitions of the three explanations for origins, there's also assumptions behind each of these explanations. What kind of assumptions does evolution have? Fundamentally, evolution assumes that the universe is self-existent and exists only of matter and energy. Intelligent design, though, is different in this way. It assumes that the universe exists of matter, energy, and information. And that's the fundamental difference between ID and evolution. Intelligent design includes that a fundamental component of the universe is information. And of course, the proposal then is information only comes from intelligence. Information doesn't come out of nothing. And so the information required comes from an intelligent source or a designer. The thing is, the identity of the designer is generally not a part of ID theory. In other words, they're not concerned with trying to identify who the designer or even what the designer is, what this intelligence is, different from what evolutionists that really are against any kind of even intelligent design say. You know, they're saying that, well, intelligent design, they're assuming that the designer is God, the God of the Bible, and that just isn't true. But, of course, what they're objecting to is, if you do understand that there's a designer, the next question is, what? (laughs) Well, who is it? it? (laughs) And they don't want you going there. Finally, then, creation also obviously has assumptions. It assumes that the creator is self-existent, supernatural and transcendent over the material universe he made. Now, as you pointed out, Scott, there are several brands of even supernatural creation. But with respect to biblical creation, another assumption would be that that creator is the author of the Bible, which includes the information about creation in Genesis. And another thing that I need to point out is that there are different interpretations of the meaning of the creation account 
And so you've got varying ideas about the specifics of what God actually did in creation. And I would say that these people are all biblical creationists. So evolution, creation, and intelligent design all have explanations for the origin of life with different assumptions sort of underpinning how they get to the conclusions they make about where everything came from. But what each of these explanations have to do is they have to come up with some kind of an explanation for how life itself, we're talking about just at the single cell level, how did life itself occur? And so I want to talk a little bit about what would it take for life to occur out of non-life? One of the first principles that we learn in biology is that living organisms do not pop into existence. In other words, spontaneously generate themselves. They always come from another living organism. However, for evolution to be true, some kind of spontaneous generation has to have occurred. And there are several evolutionary hypotheses within the theory of evolution that have claimed to provide reasonable explanations for how life may have arisen from non-life. In other words, for life to have occurred by spontaneous generation. And so what that requires is you've got to have very, very simple molecules like methane, water, carbon dioxide, these very, very simple molecules. They've got to go through complex chemical reactions to form more complex molecules like amino acids that then form proteins, nucleotides that form DNA and RNA, and you've got to have polysaccharides. You've got to have a massive number of large biomolecules that form from smaller, very complex molecules that actually came from the simplest things like carbon dioxide and water. Well, how in the world can evolution propose that those kinds of chemical reactions occurred? Well, back in the late 60s, a professor at San Francisco State University named Dean Kenyon wrote a book called Biochemical Predestination. Now, this was back in 1969, and at that time, we didn't know near what we know now about how complex these biomolecules actually are. And in that book, his proposal was that amino acids could link up together and sort of spontaneously make proteins, proteins being the workhorses of a cell. The proteins then would just work together and ultimately make a living cell. With what we know now, it's really naive, but back then they didn't know as much as we know now. Well, it didn't take long for Dean Kenyon to renounce his theory, even though the book was continued to use for many, many years in all the universities around the world. But about a decade later, the entire hypothesis was abandoned because we understood more about the interaction between DNA and proteins. And so now evolution had to come up with a new explanation, and they did. They came up with the proposal called the RNA world hypothesis. Now, this particular theory proposed that RNA could both replicate itself as well as carry out chemical reactions, which to a certain extent it can. But in the 90s, as they were doing the research on this particular theory, we found out that RNA could only add about 10 or more bases to itself before it became completely unstable. It was full of mutations, and it truly was not a good candidate for something that could replicate itself. So even today, you might hear things thrown out there like as if the RNA world is some explanation for how chemical life could have evolved. The fact of the matter is there couldn't be anything more ludicrous. And uh, that truly has been abandoned by those who really understand RNA. And I don't know if many in our listening audience remember, but RNA structure is what I got my PhD in. In fact, wow. I went to the first conference on the RNA Society of Madison, Wisconsin. And oh man, it was all exciting about they thought this RNA world hypothesis was going to explain 
everything. But the fact of the matter is that has not progressed as a viable explanation for the evolution of chemical life either. And so as late as 2013, let me just read one short little excerpt from the Journal of Biological Chemistry by Dr. Charles Carter from the uh, University of North Carolina School of Medicine. He says, quote, the RNA world hypothesis is extremely unlikely. It would take forever. <laughs> yeah, I'll say it would take more than forever. I don't think in it forever is enough time. Anyway, now this man believes in evolution and in fact believes in chemical evolution, but he recognizes that the RNA world hypothesis won't do it. He goes on to say from his study that it leaves open the question of exactly how those primitive systems managed to replicate themselves, something neither the RNA world hypothesis nor the peptide RNA world theory, which is something that is pre-RNA world, <laughs> the peptide RNA world theory can yet explain. And so what I, I'm trying to share with the audience today is evolution has absolutely no credible explanation for how chemistry could evolve to produce the biomolecules necessary for a living organism. And yet it's proposed that all is required for life is chemicals, energy and matter, and voila, there we will have it. Well, there's a lot more to talk about yet, but I don't have any more time in our program today, so we'll have to wait until next time to talk a little bit about intelligent designs proposals as well as then creations proposals. But I do want to conclude with what the Bible says about where everything came from, and it's in Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, a wonderful summary. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth the sea, and all that is in them. And that's not what I say. That's what Scripture says.